You're probably familiar with St. Jude's Research Hospital, but do you know the story of how it all got started? There's a devout Roman Catholic, an aspiring actor named Danny Thomas, and he prayed to Jude, St. Jude, and he said, if you will show me my way in life, I'll build you a shrine. Well, Danny Thomas, he went on to become a household name in the 50s and 60s, probably best known for The Danny Thomas Show. Many actors got their start right there on that show. People like Andy Griffith first appeared on The Danny Thomas Show. Well, Danny Thomas, he kept his promise about 70 years ago, and he funded and built St. Jude's Research Hospital. And since then, it has delivered success after success. They've treated so many kids with these childhood cancers. And for family after family, thousands upon thousands, they've had a remarkable impact in their lives, even discovering cures for some of these cancers. And so if you're referred to St. Jude's Hospital, one of the most amazing things about it is you're not even charged a penny. Everything they do, you're not charged for it at all. It really is an incredible story. Wouldn't it be nice to be part of a place like that? A, a part of a place that's full of hope, a part of a place where you can go for healing, a part of a place where broken lives are put back together, a part of a place where mourning turns to joy. Wouldn't it be par nice to be part of a place like that and not be charged anything? Well, if you're part of the church, you are. There is such a place. It's called the church. Peter reminds us of that in his letter that we'll look at this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And in it, we'll see that the church, well, we're better together. Let's check it out. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. It reads, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The letter of First Peter was written to believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. It wasn't written to a particular church or to a particular 
person, but to a group of people who were undergoing persecution, various types of persecution, but steady persecution at that time. And Peter tells this church that's undergoing these various trials, this strife, to be faithful because of the work that Jesus had done. See, that's where he starts. In chapter 2, it begins with this word, so, or therefore, and it's built on what he had said in chapter 1. And the first thing he does in chapter 1 is he reminds them of who Jesus is. He tells them in chapter 1, Jesus is the one you have believed in. He's the one who rose from the dead. He's the one one who secures this great inheritance for us. He's the one who gives us joy in the face of our persecution, in the midst of our trials. And this Jesus, in whom you have believed, he's doing a new work now. That's what Peter's talking about. He's building this new place, a new tabernacle. It's a building. It's a building of you and me. It's, it's this building that he's made not out of brick and mortar, but out of flesh and blood. He's using us as living stones to build this building. And now, because of all this, Peter says, because we are the building materials of this new place of meeting, this new tabernacle, that we have a job to do. There, there's, a, there's a certain way in which we're supposed to function and how we're designed to operate. And so based on everything that Peter said in chapter 1, he gets really practical in chapter 2. He, he says, first of all, get rid of all envy, of all strife, of all malice, of all jealousy, of all hypocrisy, of all slander. Don't have anything to do with any of that. Now, Notice what Peter says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, you need to pray about this and just kind of see if you have any of this in your life. And if you do, get rid of it. No, he, he knows, right? Hey, there's some of this going on. You got, you got to be done with it. He doesn't say, hey, go to your group and just ask them, hey, you guys notice this in my life? No, he says, deal with it. You know yourself. You know what's in your heart. You know how you think about others. You know how you talk about others. You know what's there and you need to deal with it. And you deal with it, you get rid of it. You be done with it. He doesn't give us any kind of fancy spiritual instructions on how to do that, really. He just says, get rid of it. There's no place for this in the church. And so this is the place where Peter starts because he wants to make sure there's no attitudes of division that are present in the church. Get rid of any attitudes that create division. You know, that's so important in the life and the ministry of the church. That the church is free of any attitudes that create division. And so we have to do that. We got to get rid of those attitudes. Now, in the old tabernacle, it was made of brick and mortar. And no brick ever like looked at another brick and said, you know what? I really wish that I was in your place. I really wish, you know, you have this prime place in the building. I wish that I could be there. There's no envy amongst the bricks. There's no like jealousy amongst the bricks. No brick is saying, oh, did you hear about that brick? Well, I can tell you some stories about that. No, no bricks are talking back. Bricks don't do that. But as flesh and blood as human beings, Sometimes we can do that. We can look at other people's giftings. Ah, I wish I was gifted like they were. I wish I had that kind of place and, and could serve in that way. Or, hey, you know, I heard there's a story behind that person. And, and to share these different stories. And we create this division. 
And Peter says, hey, if the church is going to thrive, the church is going to be what God has designed it to be, you got to get rid of all that. You deal with it right away and you be done with it. Anything that's causing division, any of those attitudes have to be dealt with. Because those attitudes, they break the fellowship. And broken fellowship leads to a distant, broken church. See, if you're not in a relationship with someone, it's much easier to hold a grudge. When you you don't have a real relationship with someone where you know them well and you're praying for them and you're rooting for them, well, it becomes a whole lot easier to talk bad about them or to assume the worst of them or for this division and these attitudes of division to grow. That's why Peter's saying, no, you are joined together in this thing. We're like living stones placed on one another, fixed to the cornerstone who's Jesus. There's this intimate relationship that's created in the church because when you're related like that, well, it becomes a whole lot harder to have these attitudes of division. In order to kind of build up the church, Peter says, here's what you need to focus on. You got to get rid of all this other stuff. Yes. And that sounds, you know, good. Okay. But you know how that often works on, works out in practical, just living. It goes like something like this. We know that there's this attitude or something that we have to deal with. Let's, let's say you get angry a lot, man, I got to control my temper. And so what you can tend to do is walk around saying, ah, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get angry today. I'm not going to get angry today. I'm not going to get angry today. And then what happens, something doesn't go the way you think it should. Somebody expresses a bad attitude. There's a car on the road doing something and you lose your temper. It's like if you're telling yourself not to eat Oreos. Oh man, there's, I just can't have any Oreos today. I can't, can't eat any Oreos today. There's, I just can't twist off that chocolate part of the cookie and then lick that creamy goodness inside. No, no Oreos today. And what are you doing? You're continuing to put the Oreo front and center in your mind. And so what what ends up happening? Well, you're focusing on the Oreo all day. So by five o'clock in the afternoon, you're walking down the grocery grocery store in the cookie aisle looking for that, that bag of Oreos because that's what you're focused on. Peter, he says, hey, the way you get rid of all these attitudes is not by just saying, okay, I'm determined not to do that. But instead, you have to fill your mind up with something. You don't just create a vacuum. You put something in there. And what do you put in there? You desire the pure milk of God's word. If you want to get rid of all these attitudes, if you want to get rid of all the sinful behavior, what you do is you focus on Jesus and his teaching. You don't spend your time saying, I don't want to envy. I don't want to slander. I don't want to talk bad about these people. I don't want to to get jealous. No, that just kind of perpetuates this negative cycle and you continue to kind of put that stuff in your mind. Instead, you read the scriptures and then you say, oh man, this is not of Jesus. I don't want to be like that. I want to be the encourager. I want my words to be seasoned with hope and and joy. I want want there's this optimism to be a part of my life. I'm going to talk well of people and what they're doing. And so when attitudes come that aren't of Christ, you let them go. Because you're filling your mind up with the mind of Christ, with the presence of Christ. And as he begins to fill who you are more and more and more, It's easier to let that other stuff go and just let it kind of get washed out because you desire Jesus. 
You desire his word and you desire living and loving as Jesus lives and loves. So you fill your mind with God's word. You get rid of it by focusing on the pure milk of God's word. So we get rid of any kind of thoughts of division by focusing on the pure spiritual milk of God's word. And here's why this is important, because throughout history, God has this alternative platform, this alternative visual for the world to see. He's showing the world, hey, you don't have to live like that. That doesn't have to define your life. There's something else who can define you and you can live like this. And so he had a mind to use Abraham as he kind of began this family. And then he had a mind to use Moses and the tribes of Israel and David and the kingdom of Israel. But all of those pictures, well, they, they marred and they, they stained what God really wanted to image and to visual for the world to see. And so now he uses Jesus and his church empowered by the Holy Spirit to be this visual for a watching world to see that, hey, you can live differently, that there's this life of hope, this life of purpose, this life of meaning, this life that is joined together with other people on a common ground with this great unity where, you, where it's defined by love and purpose and action. And so these people who are called by his name, we now submit ourselves to his word to sh and they show a better way to live. See, this is what the church is called to be. And we, the way we do this is we're purified by Christ and now the life of Christ begins to get expressed through us in the way we live because the divine architect, Jesus Christ, he's molding and shaping our lives so that we can be conformed into his image and represent him to a watching world. <laughs> and then the world gets to see, you know what, there really is a better way to live life. There really is a better way to build a marriage and to build a family. There's a better way to do my job and to be a neighbor. There's, there's a better way to this. And how does it happen? It happens when Jesus defines who we are and how we live. So then we become the light of the world that we are designed to be. Christ is placed at the cornerstone of our lives, that part of the building that everything gets measured against. You understand, every aspect of our life gets measured against Jesus as we get kind of conformed and, and knocked into place so that we represent, we image him the way he wants. Because once he's established, he's not moving. He doesn't go anywhere. He's stable. And so Peter says, hey, you have a choice here. You're either going to be joined to him as a living stone, or he's going to become a stumbling block. You're going to trip over him because him being central to your life, well, it's going to be offensive to you. So he's a rock of stumbling, or he's a rock you're joined to and measured against. But you can't have it any other way. Those are the only two options we get. But Peter says, if you're joined to him, then you become this royal priesthood, this holy nation, a chosen. I mean, do you see Peter here? He's going through just metaphor after metaphor of who we become. If you're an English professor and you're kind of grading this paper, I mean, you're pulling out your red pen at this point. You're kind of striking through some of this. You're saying, hey, choose one metaphor and just stick with it. Because all these metaphors, well, they kind of get uh, confusing almost to chase them all down. And maybe that's true, but maybe Peter is pointing out something to us that he doesn't want us to miss. 
He's pointing out that we're in this together. I mean, listen to these terms. He says, you, you are a chosen race, that you people of great diversity of all, oh, of all the ends of the earth, you come together as one. There's this unity in this, that you're a royal priesthood, that you now, you have the sacred responsibility of representing God to people, imaging him well, and at the same time, representing people to God as you pray for them. That you're a holy nation. You, you are to be set apart. You are to be distinct. You're not supposed to live and look like the world, but you're to live and look like Jesus. That you're a people of God's own possession. He's got you. He's not letting go. Satan thought he had you and oh no, Jesus got the victory in your life and he got it and now you are secure and he's not letting go of you. And from there, Peter, he just kind of piles it on. He says, you get to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you out of darkness into his marvelous grace. Once you were not a people and now you are a people. Once you were a nobody and now you're somebody because you're fixed to this great cornerstone. Once you had no mercy and now the mercy of God has been heaped upon you. So you know the interesting thing about everything that Peter's saying here? All these metaphors, all these images, it really is all together. It's not just us. It's not just us as an individual. These, these images are all community. It's a race. It's a, it's a priesthood. It's a, it's a nation. You're a people. There's something about together that is part and parcel of the church. You understand, you can't get the church alone. The church in its very essence at its very core is together and with that we represent Jesus best together but this raises a very interesting question doesn't it it's the question what exactly is the church anyway if you've never wrestled through this you you have to really think this through I mean is a house church a church is the online church a church is a group that meets on Saturday morning in a coffee shop and studies the Bible together and then goes out and serves the homeless together. Is that a church? Is a church a building where people gather together and, and hear a message and sing songs together? Is that a church? What exactly is a church? See, it's very important believer, that you have a meaningful ecclesiology that is an understanding of what the church is, of how God designed the church to be, so that we think Christianly about what church is and what church is not. Because I will tell you, there are many buildings with the word church slapped on them, and they are something, but they are not a church as the way God designed his church to be. The understanding of church is foundational. And if you've never wrestled with it, you should. I don't have time to get into all the details of how God kind of describes church in his word and how the ancient church fathers interpreted that and how we get got fleshed out in its function and its purpose and its going and, and how it got fleshed out in its governance and in its doctrine and in its teaching. All of those things are foundational to what a Christian church actually is. But there's one point that I want to make here, and that is if church is not together, it is something, but it is not the church. We're living in a day and age where isolation and loneliness is prevalent throughout our culture. 
I read a study this week that said 35% of Americans claim that they are lonely. Understand, God has designed his church as community, as together. The church has the answer to loneliness. The church of Christ has the answer to loneliness, and it's in the form of real, authentic, meaningful relationships. So meaningful that we gather together and we are sent together and we scatter together in such a way where people say, man, I need that. that that's different. I've never really seen that before. People who care for each other in that kind of way. You know, the early church, it was a time where uh, Christianity was illegal for about the first 300 years of the church. And so the early church, they had no concept of like any kind of empty surface relationships. No, they understood what deep, authentic, meaningful relationships uh, were. Because for many of them, when Jesus talks about, hey, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to leave your father, your mother. You're going to have to leave family. And you're going to come and you're going to be now joined to me, fixed to me. And so this was happening. People were leaving their families. They were risking their lives, leaving everything they know to be a part of this church because they saw it imaged and they said, this is better. And so they'd walk into an early church and the early church services, one point in the service, you would often kind of talk about the martyrs who had died that week. And you'd just say, okay. And, and then people would share their own stories. And you'd hear stories of people, hey, I, I had to leave my mom and to leave my dad and leave my family, but I'm here because I believe in Jesus and I trust Jesus. And throughout the room, they'd stand up, we know, brother, sister, we had to do the same thing. We understand, but hey, you're part of a family now. You're part of God's family. You're part of our family. And they take these brothers and sisters, and, and this is the way the church operated together with joint submission to the scriptures. And then with this unity of mission, the church would flourish in the face of steady persecution, often death. So you understand that together, unity is foundational to who the church is. It's not something that we look at and we say, oh, you know, it would be nice if we found that in the church. It would be nice if the church wasn't like a lonely place. It is a critical element of healthy ecclesiology because you must ask the question, is a lonely, crowded church really a church? See, if we really care about following Jesus, we can't follow Jesus alone. Jesus, he tells us right into who we are as Peter's describing this. There is something about community. There is something about together. And it is not optional. It is not surface. It is not just, oh, a smile and a hello. That relationships are the catalyst for true transformation. We really are better together, but it is foundational in who we are as a church that we are together. You know, when the early church met, there was also a time of strategy where they would gather together and they would talk about how and who would go out into these different areas of their community and share Jesus. The early church understood that if it was just left to themselves and they always just scattered alone, well, when you've got the threat of death facing you, that a lot of times you'd just go into self-preservation and you'd just do whatever you had to do to live to see the next day. 
And so because of these pressures, they would strategize, okay, how can we go into our community together so that we can encourage each other, so that we can build each other up? We need that same thing, don't we? Oh, the threats may be different. The pressures may have changed some, but there's still that threat, isn't there, of just living busy lives and getting distracted by all the things that we got to do on our to-do list. That threat of, hey, you know, I don't know if it's really worth speaking up here or standing out there. And we don't know when is right to speak up and when is right just to let our words or our deeds do our talking. Sometimes we can struggle. But when you go together, together we best image, we best reflect who God is and how he loves his people. So the church, they would go proclaiming in word and deed something far richer than the world could ever offer. They were living stones on the move, proclaiming this place of healing, this place of hope, this place where mourning would turn to joy, this place of unity, of togetherness, (laughs) this place that is totally free, a gift of God's grace. It's the church, but it's foundational that we are together because we are better together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you designed your church to be a community, that this together aspect is foundational to who we are, to how we live, to how we love. It represents who you are, the God who, who loves so well and exists in togetherness, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, help us together to image you well this week. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.